Good morning, or at least it is here. Welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about publicly available transportation, spaces, the way we get around, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. Today's episode is our second about Blaise Pascal, the first omnibus, and um, other stuff about the philosopher. Anyway, I am Cheryl Gross-Glazer, your host, and before we return to Mr. Pascal and what's going on with him and with whom he started this uh, omnibus service, we are going to go to our uh, snapshot of equity. And we return, um, as we as we often do in our equity snapshots, to... Uh, to issues around slavery. And today we're going to be looking a little bit at uh, slavery in the Caribbean. Um, this is an equity snapshot from a system of slavery that lasted a few hundred years and involved the French, as Blaise Pascal is French, to show that this nation participated in the international trade in human beings, sugar and alcohol, which generated huge profits for European, including French, businessmen. This industrial system included the sale of generations of Africans, more men than women, into forced labor camps that were the Caribbean sugar plantations. Uh, but there were also those producing coffee and chocolate. From Wikipedia's entry entitled Slavery in the British and French Caribbean, we find descriptions of the same triangular trade that existed in the British colonial empire and um, involved early U.S. history um, in terms of enslavement, mass production of sugar and alcohol, such as rum. Uh, that is then, you know, these goods are sold in the mother country and there's a sale of cheap goods to colonies within the empire. And I quote, Slavery had been active in French colonies since the early 16th century. It was first abolished by the French government in 1794, so that's after Mr. Pascal's life, going back to the quote, whereupon it was replaced by forced labor before being reinstated by Napoleon in 1802. The Europeans purchasing enslaved people directly from Africa bought them for about half the price of slaves in the New World. Examples of slave prices in Africa include 172 cowries, 1 25th of a horse, and 9,000 pounds of sugar. And I'll just say I don't know the relative values of those commodities over time. Although sugarcane was brought back to Spain by Columbus himself from the Americas, sugar was then, at that time, a luxury commodity. It only turned into a household uh, necessity, commonplace on European tables, with these forced labor camps in the Caribbean. Sugar plantations in the Caribbean and in Louisiana were farms as well as factories that grew the sugarcane and then refined it into the white sugar crystals. And a, a World History Encyclopedia article des describes the cruel life of enslavement on a sugar plantation. The diet was unvaried and meant to be as cheap for the owner as possible. The lack of nutrition, 
hard working conditions, and regular beatings and whippings meant that the life expectancy of slaves was very low, and the annual mortality rate on plantations was at least 5%. So ponder that for a moment, even as we think about the cruelties in the labor camps that existed in uh, what became the U.S., and how much uh, worse, at least on a broad scale, uh, what was going on in the Caribbean uh, seemed to be. Maybe because there were so many absentee owners, I don't know, maybe because sugar itself Europe became addicted to. I don't know the answer to that. Anyway, we are going to get back to public transportation and we are going to first look at uh, the partner of Blaise Pascal because uh, he was a partner, was a true partner in the public, this first public transportation system. And he so his partner is, ah, I'm going to definitely butcher, butcher the pronunciation of this guy's name. He is a solid member of the nobility. His name is Artus Gauffier, uh, the Duke de Rouenez, or as we're going to just call him here, the Duke. Anybody who knows French or is French, you know, doesn't feel like there's uh, fingernails being dragged across the blackboard. Um, uh, the Duke is four years younger than Pascal, and they, they meet actually as children. They lived across the street from each other and went to the same church as children. And... Uh, the start of the friendship kind of lends a little bit more. His biographer talks, uh, or, not, uh, ah, I'm wrong, it's actually one of the websites talks about this, how um, Pascal became friends with this kid. He's 12, Pascal is 12, the kid is 8, and, and then um, the Dukes has a 2-year-old sister at this point, and... Um, that Pascal begins this this friendship in which he's the dominating person. And and in fact, he does always throughout their lives when they're friends kind of dominate the friendship. So that's kind of interesting. At 12, the Duke became a Marquis because uh, his father passed away. And then three years later, when he's 15, his grandfather dies and he uh, officially becomes the Duke. Uh, the, Pascal, the Pascals had already moved away, and we don't know if the Duke and Pascal had any kind of contact or correspondence for the 10 years between 1641 and 51, so from their late teens through their late 20s. The Duke tends to have, you know, at this point, a co conventional trajectory. He was a soldier, and he socializes at the court of Louis XIV. All is looking very normal for him. Um, but in 1651, so uh, at the age of 24, the Duke, uh, and this is a quote from a... Uh, website and everything everything's uh, on the the show notes the duke bought the government of Poitou which was close to the homelands of his mother and father it was it cost 300,000 pounds but he uh, the king gives him a hundred thousand of that so it's a nice a nice di little deal and three years later after his military service when he's 30 
his interests turned to administrating the government of this uh, place, to engineering, the invention of machines, having to do with transportation and the drainage of marshes. So he's already into all of this. And he does, uh, at this point, enlist his friend, Blaise Pascal, to assist. And Pascal actually joined one of the draining uh, companies that's involved in this work. It doesn't appear that it was full-time work or that he did a lot of work uh, for this, but it's hard to know. That's We don't have those documents. Uh, at, a, at about, about this time, it looks like the Duke is going to marry well, and he needs to because he needs the money. His estate was loaded down with debt, but the marriage didn't happen. Um, the Duke informs his well-meaning uncle who had arranged the match that he decided not to marry anyone. The uncle is dumbfounded. He's like, can't believe it because this is the money that's going to support the whole family. Um, but the Duke, you know, he's he's going down this rabbit hole with Blaise Pascal on the religion thing. So he doesn't want to get married. It, you know, it's whole sinful. But uh, his sister does later marry. This is after, actually, Pascal's death. Um, and uh, it's a rather good match in terms of money. They had four children, but it, but it's very sad because uh, what, the first child died very young. Uh, the two had quite significant disabilities, and the fourth was frail in some way. Um, and so none of those children end up having children. Uh, the Duke, however, of course, doesn't know this uh, at the time. He's being hounded because this, this sect, Jansenism, uh, was officially dissolved, basically outlawed, and uh, being suspe suspected of being an adherent. Um, you know, his his property was on the line. So he gave his dushi to, however you pronounce that, to his sister, or rather to his brother-in-law, and he withdraws from public life in 1667. So this is five years after Pascal dies, after, you know, they've gone through all his papers and everything. Um, and he retires basically to this uh, religious institution, though never officially entering it. And he passes away almost 30 years later. Uh, so quite a lot of time, you know, for for his own religious contemplation. If you look up information about the Duke, um, inevitably you find him as a footnote or uh, comments um, that are rounding out the life of Pascal, description of the life of Pascal. Um, there's not much particularly on him alone or that discuss his personality. Um, and there was uh, a time, I'll just say this as a little bit of a footnote, uh, when it's suspected that, that Pascal himself is in love with the Duke's sister and that perhaps he wants her to, he encourages her, and he does encourage her to go to, into a convent because he doesn't want someone else to marry her. But we don't really know uh, about that. We do know that, you know, he, he never in any any of his writings, his letters, it doesn't seem like there's ever any physical desire here. And there certainly he was always uh, more than turned off, but really uh, bothered by the idea of physical connection. So um, he can't understand why his sister is ever 
physically affectionate with our children. So um, I don't I don't think you know that when he, even if he contemplated marriage to her, there was a, a normal marriage that he was contemplating. Anyway. Let's go to public transportation. So we have these two very, very close friends. One um, either wealthy or it certainly has the property and the connections to uh, be able to draw on resources. Um, one brilliant but odd. Um, and we have uh, an as yet uninvented idea. Now, there was already intercity fixed route transportation, so it wasn't like an idea that I would say that no one had thought of. I can imagine there were people walking around Paris doing their work who don't have access to resources or the time to uh, kind of fully realize this kind of idea. But, but here you have Pascal who does. So... We don't know who conceives of the idea. Is it Pascal? Is it the Duke? Are they talking about it? And one one's ideas, you know, grow on the other ones. We we don't know this. We do know that there was demand response uh, transportation taxis of a sort. Um, and uh, ah, I will get into that in a moment. Okay, so. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is that Pascal and the Duke, in combination, they occupy a rather sweet spot in terms of developing this idea of public transportation in some way. Um, they're not wildly wealthy, either of them, but they have access to wealth and they have friends with wealth, right? So they know what it is to... Uh, to be want to go somewhere and to be able to get a carriage and a driver, you know, whenever. They know what that is like, even if they don't have access to that themselves all the time. And they're certainly well connected and close enough to those who do have those advantages. Uh, we have a person who's physically and medically vulnerable. Um, this would have been at best unpleasant and more likely dangerous for Pascal to have traversed the, the streets. Remember, this is at a time when there's lots of horse manure in the street. People throw their garbage randomly into the street. And so the streets can be very slippery. And um, even Sex in the City is an episode set in Paris where, you know, you have the dog poop, nobody's cleaning up, and she slips. Carrie, Carrie Bradshaw slips on it. So, uh, you know, even more so in those days. Um and we can safely say, I think, and it's really interesting, and it's really not kind of uh, acknowledged as such, but that the person who gives birth to, or is one of the partners giving birth to modern public transportation, was a person with a disability, um, and somebody who knew knows what quality transportation is, but really has uh, this need. Um, and although we have two people who are not perhaps uh, have enormous wealth, especially Pascal, uh, neither of them ever had a full-time job. So they're not like rushing off each day doing stuff and then they don't have much time for an idea. They, they kind of have an, some time to get together to talk about ideas and to develop it and connections. So 
they set out to invent this public or rather publicly available fixed route tra passenger transportation network. Uh, they they privately own it as as others early though much later transportation systems were started by by individuals or companies um, and they're they're expecting a profit um, and definitely expecting that this will be a public service but remember their whole idea of society and the class hierarchy are very different from our own, certainly here in the U.S. Uh, they live at a time when serving the riffraff, I'll call them, now uh, is not exactly necessarily popular. Um, we're talking about when a time when all social classes and religions are not uh, considered to have been created equal, equally. Um, and, and Pascal certainly himself never deviates from this. Um, he's always trying to be at the level of his equals or betters, uh, shall we say, shall we call them as he would have seen them, and looking askance at people with different religious beliefs. Uh, there's nothing in his history, even his charity to the poor, and he did give to the poor, to suggest that he was, you know, discontented with the social fabric as it uh, existed. Now, the streets of Paris at this time had recently been widened, and this may have sparked uh, for him and his friend uh, the idea of, of this system, this public transit system. There were as ready, already, as I said, intercity coaches, and there were already taxi-like carriages or cabs that could be rented um, on demand that were there in the street, um, and human-powered sedan chairs. Just taking another sip of my coffee. It's no longer that hot, but it's still really good. Um, and these were demand response services. They weren't on a particular route. They were also too expensive for the average Parisian. And because Pascal never made money, he's thinking of this. Um, he's only living off a modest inheritance at this time. Um, from the Why Today is Brilliant blog, a little quote. Uh, together, this is referring to Pascal and the Duke, they gathered investors, drew up contracts, and got letters patents from, the, from King Louis XIV, giving them a monopoly on their idea. Test runs at the end of February in 1662 proved it was easy, with only one carriage, to make four trips along their proposed route between 6 a.m. and 11 a.m., and the same between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. The new carriages were launched in a blaze of publicity on March 18, 1662. There were newspaper advertisements and posters everywhere explaining about the new services. The new service. Twelve carriages would follow the route, so one would arrive every seven or eight minutes. So, even for those with their own carriage, it would be quicker to catch one than to have your own made ready. Each carriage would carry eight passengers, and the fare would be only five sous, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which was 25 times cheaper than hiring even the cheapest carriage for the day. So here we have the birth of fixed route, or omnibus service, in the modern world. And like the first day of both the Boston and the New York City subway openings, Paris is very excited. People were actually off from work for this extravaganza, and the carriages were instantly popular, immediately crowded. 
The omnibuses were called, and I apologize to French speakers everywhere, carrosse a cinq sols, or five penny carriages. So this pair, this duo, they invent the exact fare uh, when it became dangerous, or, or they, or who was at, whoever was actually operating this, because we don't know if Pascal or the Duke actually, you know, were like the general, op, uh, had a job as like the general manager of this, because remember, there's drivers to be hired, and, you know, various details to be worked out, as any transit manager knows. So... Uh, an exact fare was imposed when it became evident that it was dangerous for drivers to be carrying enough money to be giving exact change. And this, it seems, I only saw one reference to this, it seems that the exact fare might not have been the same uh, wherever you went for however you, long you were riding. Um, one one reference I saw was to that they had a zone system and that the fares were based on zones according to how many zones you were traveled through, which certain modern systems have to this day. Um, and there's no information about the exact zone structure, so I apologize for that. Whoever was actually running the service also invented the rider complaint. So it's funny that so soon after we have public transit, we have complainers. Uh, no kidding. So we have each carriage was labeled with a particular number so that a passenger could easily make a complaint identifying a rude driver. Um, and to quote from a, a web page called a provincial named Blas Pascal, it goes into detail about the routes. The first route opened on March 18, 1662, and it leads from the Hotel de Duc de Roanez, that's, so that's the Duke's residence, to Pascal's residence while serving very busy places such as the Châtelet, Palais de Justice, and the Foix Saint-Germain. The second route opened on April 11th, 1662, so I'll digress not less than a month later. Uh, going back to the uh, quote, at the king's request, it served the Louvre. The connection appears for the first time. You have to change coaches at the Sense Innocent Cemetery to go from Luxembourg to the Royal Palace. On May 27th, 22nd, 1662, um, and to digress for a moment, so this is barely two months after the first, the launch of the service, the third route offers uh, several places of correspondence with the first two. The fourth line opened on June 24, 1662. This Tour de Paris route uh, cuts through all the others, and by taking it, it's possible to go... Um, ah, where am I? I seem to have... There we are. Cut myself off. Um, ah, yes. And from there, it's possible to cut through all the other routes, and by taking it to go to all the districts of Paris. The fifth and last route was created on July 5th, 1662. So this all happens very, very quickly. These omnibuses are immediately popular. Um, according to the same website, a provincial named Blaise Pascal, Pascal Bla passes away uh, about one month after the opening of the fifth route. He gave half of his share in, of the profits to the poor. Um, 
So in less than six months, you have this new public transportation growing very quickly. It has frequent service. I mean, it really gets, um, you know, what you need for successful public transit service that's going to be attractive to people. Um, and with the instant success in Paris, there's talk of similar services being launched uh, in Lyon and in Amsterdam. Though none of this talk uh, led to anything, perhaps because um, after the first few months, neither the uh, neither of the originators, Pascal or the Duke, are active anymore, and the Duke is already in trouble, uh, you know, about his religious leanings and his financial situation. So who knows? We don't know. Um, but no one copies this this experiment. Uh, at this time. And when I say they, you know, when I talk about they, we don't know who the they is, uh, who's, op as I said, actually operating the transit service. Um, remember, at this time, uh, Pascal's very ill, he's mostly isolated, and we don't know exactly what the Duke's involvement was once the service is launched, um, or perhaps after these early, you know, these early routes. Um, we do have some clues. So unfortunately, despite the quality of the frequent service and the obvious need, or the need that is immediately obvious for the service, um, these small horse-drawn omnibuses were no match for social mores and prejudices. Um, some wealthy patrons, uh, not the ones wanting to experience the hubbub of missing, mixing with the masses, would get on and buy up all the seats. Um, denying seats to anybody else along the route. This this practice was soon outlawed, but can you imagine uh, subway or bus or microtransit m service being so popular that somebody would say, this is the greatest thing. I don't have to have my own vehicle. I'll just buy up the seats. Um, so this practice is outlawed. Um, the mixing of social classes, even on these relatively fast, convenient omnibuses, however, was not appreciated, um, even by others. The upper crust passengers pressured the government, which soon banned all sorts of undesirables from the omnibuses. And I'll say this, the, the undesirables, they're the essential workers, uh, soldiers, servants, and unskilled workers. Uh, and this leads then to a very French form of resistance. The servants were stoning the carriages as they passed. And this then led to another law, one that imposed fines for attacking the omnibus drivers. As for the demise of this early fixed-route omnibus network in the 1690s, uh, we know nothing. Uh, despite its early popularity, the system doesn't continue to grow, perhaps because of money. At some point, the Duke sold his interest in the venture. Uh, we do know, however, that this this um, transit system enters into the public imagination and is well known, and it's spurred, sparred, no, spurred, <laughs> spurred, motivates the writing of a romantic comedy that played in Paris, the intrigue of the five penny carriages, which had a madcap plot about an adulterous husband who picks up women on the bus and the wife who catches him. And just a little quote, his wife won him back 
by following him disguised as a mysterious masked woman. The other husband, who's, uh, you know, another major character, was stealing his wife's jewels to fund his gambling habit, and she disguised herself as a man, got in his carriage, and managed to pick his pocket to get her jewelry back. Even then, the French exhibited their unique cultural attitudes, because in the U.S., I think, what we would have had was something more like On the Town, if you remember that old movie with the pretty cab driver who catches the eye of a Navy sailor on leave. <laughs> and I will leave us with a little end note of significance, which is that public transportation did not begin in Paris again for more than a hundred years until 1828 and that marks around the beginning of when London and Paris start with their omnibus systems. I want to thank you for listening today. There's lots of information in the show notes. Contribute your thoughts and, and um, go down the rabbit hole of those links. I'm from the